Blog Talk Radio. Radio, and I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit, and our producer, Marty Oakley. They provide us a forum to warn others about the reality of hospice. Before we get started, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this program during this past year, and to thank my guests who have come on and told their heartfelt, tragic stories as well as my professional guests who have shared their expertise. Tonight's show will be the last for this year, and I hope we've been able to bring some awareness to people about the dangers of trusting without verifying. For those who have never listened to Betrayed by Hospice talk shows or who have never experienced the tragedy of losing someone at the hands of the medical profession, the information that will be provided tonight may be shocking For those who have witnessed it for yourselves or have listened before, you won't be surprised, but you may garner another tidbit of information or another red flag to watch for. In any case, thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you will walk away after hearing something that will be useful in protecting you or your loved one, because that is my goal. For me, this is extremely personal because my mom was murdered by hospice in the summer of 2017 in a Georgia hospice facility under the guise of compassionate care. So I have seen the cruelty firsthand and I can never forget. Originally, hospice was created in 1967 by Dame Cicely Saunders in London to help minimize pain for the actively dying who could no longer be treated with medicine or procedures. Over the years, it has expanded to allow people to enroll who can be treated, but it was determined that treating patients, especially those who were older, disabled, or were no longer contributing to society, were costing too much money, and it was cheaper to eliminate them. And what better way? They already had a system set up that could hasten the death of those actively dying, so why not use that method? After all, look what Hitler did in 1941 to 1944. And yes, I am comparing this to the Holocaust. This is calling the elderly and disabled for execution, and what is their crime? Today, the criteria has been watered down so that it includes almost anyone for anything. Illnesses that can be treated such as COPD, congestive heart failure, or dementia, you qualify. You go to the hospital three times a year, you qualify. You have difficulty dressing or feeding yourself, or you've become incontinent, you qualify. You stop eating, you qualify. It would probably be easier to say what doesn't qualify someone. 
And because I believe in practicing what I say, don't take my word. Look it up for yourself at Vitas, V-I-T-A-S dot com. And as many of you may know, a urinary tract infection can cause many of the symptoms that I just talked about. But you may not be tested. And if you're in hospice, they don't treat anything because it's considered aggressive medical treatment. You aren't even allowed to go to the hospital for an emergency without unrolling. But, of course, they'll take you back afterwards because it benefits them. And hospice staff are trained to manipulate you into believing that they only want to help and provide compassionate care, and they'll tell you whatever they think you want to hear to get you to enroll. They promise better care, more help, showers, meals, sitter service, a nurse coming to you, and they'll tell you you can take your regular medication. But I've talked to many who say that that's not true. The medication was immediately stopped without any discussion. And here's the clincher. It won't cost you anything. So it sounds too good to be true because it is. And as we know, nothing in life is free, and neither is this. And if you ask later about what you were promised, Somebody might say to you, "Um, I don't know who told you that because we don't do that. And that's just the end of the discussion. It's like a game of who will win and get the enrollment because there are quotas. And I'll share that with you in a minute. Hospice is the beginning of the end, whether you are dying or not, because your death will be hastened. So when they talk about it being free, Medicare and Medicaid for this year, pay $29,964.78. It's an aggregate cap for the year 2020. But wait, you paid into these funds all of your working days. It's a contract that was made between you and the government when you were valued as having something to offer. And now you plan to collect. But for how long is the question? And let me go back to, it isn't free. Because I believe everybody should do their research and not just trust what I told you. I invite you to listen to a hospice respiratory therapist who saw many things firsthand and wrote a book about hospice, the promises, the signing quotas, and the actual truth. Michelle Young-Dewers is the author of Killing for Profit, the dark side of hospice and it is truly dark and evil it exposes what hospice is about and more than just the death culture her refusal to accept this cruel inhumane treatment cost her her job but not her integrity or her soul i encourage you to read this informative book as michelle shares real life stories with patients and what she encountered with compassionate care Last week, I found out that my aunt had the China virus, survived it, only to be released from the hospital and put under hospice care. My sister and I spoke to one of her children and were very blunt about what hospice was doing to their mom. Sadly, they chose to listen to a half-sister ex-nurse who convinced them that hospice was the only choice. And I don't have all the details to my aunt's condition, but no effort was attempted to treat whatever the issue was. 
and she was euthanized last week. Did our explanation sound too bizarre? The bottom line, we were not able to convince them to try alternatives. But we did what we could, and sometimes that's all you can do. People are so indoctrinated to believe hospice because they used to be compassionate that sometimes they refuse to see anything different. And again, we can only share our truth and let each person make their own decision. But if you are not aware and you haven't witnessed this cruel, hastening death in person, you can't possibly understand the horror of what actually happens. Continuing to trust hospice and allow them to literally murder our loved ones is what keeps them in business and continue this evil death culture. But hospice was never meant to drug someone into unconsciousness with toxic drugs until they take their last breath and die from the drugs, starvation, and dehydration. But it's happening every day. It's stealth euthanasia, calling the elderly and disabled because of money. And some hospices may be pro-life, but you have to do your research before you need it. And it doesn't matter if they're profit, nonprofit, or with a religious affiliation. So don't be misguided. Rarely are they compassionate, nor do they put your loved one's need ahead of convenience and money. Because ultimately, they are a huge conglomerate whose compassion is for money, not patience. And I'm not saying that hospice doesn't have a place in our society. If somebody truly has end-stage cancer, liver, or kidney failure, they're actively dying, they cannot be treated, and they are in pain, then I believe hospice has a reason for that. And I believe a minimal dose of morphine or another pain medicine is appropriate if they are told what it will do and they consent to taking it. I don't think anybody should have to be in pain, but hospice uses a one-size-fits-all and is not providing small doses to minimize pain. Oh, no, no, no. They are drugging patients into a coma and hastening their death. That's a fact. My mom and others were not actively dying and did not consent to taking those toxic drugs. So knowledge is power. Make these hard decisions now and let your loved ones know what you want in writing. Decide who you want to have your medical power of attorney and make sure it's somebody you trust to do what's best for you and not somebody who might want you gone. We'll go into that more with our guest this evening. And if the patient is capable of making decisions, they should be allowed to do so and you should fight for them to have that right. It's too easy for a nurse to talk around the patient directly to the family members as if the person can't hear and make their own decisions. Let them have their dignity and speak if they're able. Of course, this should be before any drugs are forced on them. An excellent website for a sample, safe medical power of attorney, along with other important information, is Halo Voice, one word, H A L O Voice dot org. And no cliche has ever been more true. Your loved one's life or your life literally hangs in the balance. 
At any point, if you observe anything suspicious, trust your instincts and get them or yourself out immediately. Another good resource is Life Legal Defense Foundation. They have access to pro-life attorneys around the United States, and they can help if you meet resistance in leaving hospice. You have the right to revoke hospice at any time. So once your loved one is enrolled, what can you expect or what happens? In many cases, the patient starts to decline rapidly, and they suddenly become groggy. They stop eating, drinking, and talking. They may moan or try to get out of the bed, but they can't. And when you ask what happened to them, a nurse may hand you a pamphlet that shows the same signs that your loved one is exhibiting, and they tell you this is the dying process, and so you think they're right. But you say it happened so quickly and you're sad, but they have conditioned you into accepting They started the death cocktail, which emulates the dying symptoms, and now your loved one is dying, but not from a disease or from old age, but from the drugs. And as you see these symptoms, it becomes easier for the nurse to say, oh, they're anxious, so we're going to give them some Ativan or Seroquel, or they're combative, so they give them Haldol, or see that? They're in pain. We're going to give them a whisper of morphine. Or they're having a hard time breathing, and this morphine will help. By the way, morphine can depress breathing, but they don't tell you that. It's a vicious cycle that they follow, acting like it's all in the best interest of the patient. It's a lie. They are causing these symptoms and torturing our loved ones, and the results will be hasten death. If to any of you this sounds familiar, it's because we've been conditioned to believe hospice is compassionate and we accept what they tell us. And it's important at this point, let me talk briefly about the drugs. First, you have the right, the obligation to find out what drugs they want to give you or your loved one before they give them Some nurses on some of the hospice nurses' Facebook groups think it's funny to refer to a ham sandwich, which contains the toxic drugs Haldol, Ativan, and morphine that are typically used to euthanize patients. And they're used as a one-size-fits-all since the patient's life no longer matters. They're in hospice now. Morphine is also called Roxanol, and it's used to minimize the pain if the person truly is in pain. And then a small amount may be needed. But most of my guests will tell you their loved ones were not in pain, and it's given more frequently and in larger doses than is needed. Ativan is also called lorazepam, and it's used to treat anxiety. However, there are other methods that they could use, like showing them photos, singing or reading to them, or just softly talking. But again, many of my guest loved ones were not anxious until they started drugging them, and then they were terrified. Haldol is an antipsychotic used to treat mood disorders, bipolar, 
or schizophrenia. Does your loved one meet this criteria? Most likely not. Another antipsychotic that is commonly given to our elderly is Seroquel, which is also to treat mood disorders, schizophrenia, or Tourette syndrome, which again, typically our loved ones don't have that either. So why are they giving this to them? Sometimes the nurse will say, it's because the patient is combative. Well, I'd be combative too if I realized you're doing this to me. Fentanyl, also called duragesic, is the strongest pain medication. It is 100 times stronger than morphine and 50 times stronger than heroin, and it's usually used in a patch form. They may become anxious or get irritated when they're being held against their will and they don't know what's happening and after you give them these drugs. The side effects of these, all of these drugs can be horrible. Each of these drugs individually has side effects such as drowsiness, dizziness, depressed breathing, confusion, nausea, hallucinations, irritability, anxiety, mood change, lack of appetite, and constipation. Combining these drugs makes the symptoms worse and can be deadly, as in a coma or death. And there are warnings on these drugs that it may be dangerous for the elderly, but, well, they're in hospice. It doesn't matter if it's dangerous because the intent is to hasten their death. And if the staff don't know that this is what's going to happen, they shouldn't be administering them. And if they do know, they are complicit in hastening death. Here's the thing. If you're in this situation and something seems off, trust your instincts. Stop the drugging and call for help. Again, as I mentioned, halovoice.org also has a helpline. That is 888-221, the word HALO, H-A-L-O. They also have a listing of the drugs at their site that I just talked about that is also a helpful guide. Every state has a right-to-life group as in Texas Right to Life, California Right to Life. Google your state, find out what it is, talk to them if you need help. Again, there's also Life Legal Defense Foundation. So there are places you can go to get information from people and save your loved ones. Do not trust that hospice staff are telling you the truth. They are not. And if you already know what can happen to your loved one, or it has, and you want to help, Halo Voice is always looking for volunteers to help answer their helpline, and they will train you and provide information and resources. So if you can help, please contact them. And remember this. If you gave the same drugs that I just talked about, the duration, the combination, to a young, healthy person, that person would die, not from a disease, but from the drugs, dehydration, and starvation. So how is it not murder? It is, 
a patient and the family should be told about the drugs before they are administered, what they will do, told that your loved one will no longer be able to communicate with you, this is the end, and you should have signed consent before any of this happens. And they aren't minimizing the pain. They're killing them. If you're at home hospice, they will give you a kit with the same drugs that I talked about, and they will tell you to administer them. If you do, you will be hastening your loved one's death. And it's going to get worse. The baby boomers are coming to an age where they will become more expensive to treat. Imagine turning 65 when you can retire, collect Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid, will kick in, and someone decides you've outlived your usefulness. And I believe many of the elderly people who died in the nursing facilities with COVID were also helped to cross over with the same toxic drugs. But toxicology reports weren't done because they didn't suspect. They didn't know what we know. There's a Facebook group called Voices for Seniors that has many members this happened to. There's also another Facebook group called Murdered by Hospice with people that have experienced exactly what our guest tonight is going to talk to us about. As our vulnerable and innocent loved ones are taken from us in the dead of the night under the guise of hospice compassionate care, the government stands by and does nothing to stop these murders. Where is justice? Tonight, Our guest is Julie Lang, who will share the tragic story of her dad, James Lang, age 77, who believed he would be protected in his old age, but sadly, relatives that should have been trusted were not trustworthy and did not put his health first. He was disposed of rather than treasured. Julie tried everything she knew to save him, but she was as betrayed as he was. Sadly, he passed August the 23rd, 2014, after fighting to survive. Julie, even though it's been six years, you can attest to the fact that it doesn't get easier through the years and the memories remain as vivid as the days they occurred. So can you walk us through what happened to your dad? Julie? Julie, can you unmute? I don't know if we've lost our guest. Marty, do we still have Julie on the line? Marty, do I have you there? Okay. So um, hopefully Julie will join us. Hopefully I am still on the air. And Julie's situation In 2002, her dad, James, was diagnosed with COPD. And the doctor there, when they found out that he had COPD, told him to get things in order because this was close to the end. I'm sorry, I'm I'm trying to get us back on air. What do you, but it was When did we go off um, air? Do I have Julie? Wait a minute, it's muted. Have... She might have muted herself up. Hang on. No, Julie. I have, no, I'm. I'm. Hello. 
Yeah. Okay, Julie. Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you. I can hear you. Can you tell us about your dad? Yes, and I was just saying, I guess you didn't hear me, that while you were speaking, I was sitting here, and I just think this is an important part of something that just came up. One, I'd first like to say these are... These are my opinions based on my review and my my experience um, with this. Um, but as you were speaking about the the drugs, Marcia, yes. I've been going back through, and I would suggest that of people who have gotten their um, their records to go back through, because each time, as you learn more, as you become more familiar, more things will stick out to you. And just sitting here going through his medication chart. Um, it's just unbelievable. But but to start out, um, this began in the the end of May of 2014, and he had been living at home by himself, doing fine, um, doing all of his daily activities by himself. Back in 2002, he was diagnosed with COPD. Um, he went to the hospital, was treated, um, began seeing a regular physician and a pulmonologist. Um, he was on oxygen full-time, had a medication routine of his breathing treatments, and and was doing really, really well managing it. Um, as, as I told you before, one of the doctors at the hospital when he first went back in 2002 said, oh, Mr. Lang, you need to get your affairs in order. This is just terrible. You know, you're you're not going to make it. Here we are, 2014, and he's still doing really, I mean, exceptionally well. He was, like I said, doing all of his daily activities by himself, mowing his yard, doing all of his house activities, going to the grocery store. Um, and the end of May, he calls me, says he's not feeling well, um, said he was going to make a doctor's appointment for, I believe, May 28th. He goes to his pulmonologist. His pulmonologist says he probably has pneumonia, um, want you to go over to the hospital, but I don't want you to have to go through the ER and sit there for hours and wait. Go back home, get a good night's rest, um, get up in the morning, and if you call an ambulance, you kind of get a fast pass into the emergency room. So he he was doing, I mean, he's doing his thing. He goes home. Um, he's feeling crummy, like he's got the flu, I guess would be a good, you know, he's just not feeling great, but he's doing fine. He gets up the next morning, takes a shower, gets dressed, comes in there and says, hey, okay, I think I'm going to call the ambulance now. And I said, okay. And so he he calls the ambulance. The ambulance shows up at his front door and he's sitting there in his chair waiting on him. And I'm sitting there on the couch waiting on him. And as I told you, they, the EMS guy seemed a little irritated because he was not in distress. But that was what his pulmonologist had recommended he do. So they take him to the hospital um, he is treated for pneumonia. He's there from, I believe, the 30th to, um, I believe it was June 4th. They release him to the, from the hospital, um, and I'm sure everybody's aware, I guess it's with, with everybody, but especially older people, when you're in a hospital, you tend to um, lose um, your strength pretty quickly. They say for every day you're, this is what I've heard, for every day you're in the hospital, it takes about seven days to get your strength back. So he was, mm, he was good as far as his pneumonia had been cleared up, but his strength was weak. But he gets home, you know, no need for an ambulance. He gets home. We have home health care set up. Um, the only thing that um, they hadn't done was 
the doctor, I guess you have to get doctor's orders to get a wheelchair and, or not a wheelchair, I'm sorry, a walker, um, uh, toilet lift or whatever, um, and, and to get the PT and the nurse coming. So we get that set up. That, like I said, the 4th or the 5th of June, um, I'm going to work during the day, driving back to his house, um, and staying with him in the evenings. He's home by himself during the day. He's getting up and doing whatever he needs to do around the house. But his, his legs are still a little weak. And, and like I said, the, the, I think the physical therapist and the nurse had come by twice that week. Well, I had gone and stayed with him thir- Thursday night, got up Friday morning, went and got him the newspaper from the gas station, got him something to eat, and I leave to go to work. And that's about 7 o'clock in the morning. Well, right before lunch, I believe it was, he calls me from his cell phone, sounded fine, and he said, guess where I am? And I said, where? And he said, well, um, I'm at the hospital. And I said, well, what are you doing there? And he said, well, not to tell too much of his business, but he said, I was sitting on the toilet, and at my legs, I just couldn't get myself back up. And so he said, I just kind of got myself, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail, but anyway, he said he army crawled back to his bed, called the ambulance, they came and got him. But other than his legs being weak, he's he's good. So he's in the hospital until I would say, and I hate to go off my notes too much. Um, about I think it was this. He went back on the on the tenth. Is that what I said? He went back on the tenth or the thirteenth. I'm sorry, he went back on the thirteenth of June. He was at the hospital for four days. Again, he's still weak, and they said, well, before you go home, we're going, uh, we recommend going to an LTAC, which is uh, a long-term acute care, and I think you had, had found a different terminology for it. Um, but it's, my understanding is an LTAC is a step down from the hospital, but a step up from, like, say, a nursing home rehab. Um, and so... He is at, uh, he's transferred from uh, the hospital over to the LTAC. And um, during this period of time, my sisters had not really been super involved. I mean, one of them would come like once or twice a month. Jamie would come once or twice a month. Terry would come on holidays and maybe an occasional other time or two during the year. When he first went to the hospital, I had contacted them and told them that Dad was going to the hospital, that, you know, that, that Dr. Mueller had suggested that they weren't involved. Well, the day that they suggested that he go to um, Vibra, which is the LTAC, um, I called them and said, you know, this is what they're suggesting is that he do. Um, and they showed up, Jamie showed up and was offended that um, – that I was making decisions for dad. And I said, I'm, I'm not making decisions for dad. Dad's making decisions for dad. So, again, mm-hmm. that is June 13th, 14th is about the time that it happened. So I, after all of this comes, after all of this happens, and after he passes, I request all the medical records, and I um, find out that on, I'm sorry, let me back up. On June 17th, he fills out a full code resuscitation form, and I guess that was a standard thing that, you know, they'd ask him, you know, what, what what are your wishes? He filled out a full code resuscitation form on June 17th. He signs it. Dr. Telez, who's his regular physician of 12 years, Dr. Telez signs it and the nurse signs it. I point that out because he is 
competent. He's got his capacity. He knows what his wishes and desires are. He and Dr. Tellez fill that out. No questions asked. That's his decision. That's on June 17th. It's about that time, um, and, and there were some comments made by my sisters that that I'm not sure what caused them to get kind of um, defensive. Um, my dad had wanted me to stay at the hospital with him when he was up there. Um, Jamie made the comment that I didn't need to stay, that dad told her that she and Terry didn't need to be staying up there, that they could go home. I don't know if that bothered them. I don't know that she thought maybe I was taking charge whenever I told her that dad wanted to go to the specialty or the LTAC. But it was about that point that they start kind of acting funny. Now, mind you, our whole lives, everyone has gotten along. No arguments. Everybody's fine until this point. So he signs the full code resuscitation form on the 17th. Um, What I find out later, because Jamie never provided me with a copy, but on June 20th, which is three days later, she takes um, a durable power of attorney that, now these documents, from what I can tell, because it's handwritten on there, it says staples, go to download form. So she goes to Staples, gets a durable power of attorney, a medical power of attorney, um, and a directive to physicians, which is basically an advanced directive. She has these forms completely filled out with her initials, her name, and on the durable power of attorney, she had um, arrows drawn on there that I don't know if y'all are familiar with the durable power of attorney, but it, it can be specific to items or it can give full authority. She has an arrow drawn um, on certain places, and, and I would presume that what she did, because I wasn't there, but I presume what she did, filled it out completely, took it to my dad and said, here, Dad, initial here, initial here, sign here, sign here, and thought she would get him to do that and she'd walk out the door and have her paperwork. What happened was my dad added me on the power of attorney, and my dad added me on the advanced directive. There was Those were the only two lines that had blank spaces where he could add someone. She doesn't tell me at the time. She just says that she has gotten power of attorney of dad and that um, any, if anybody had any questions to ask, you know, we could ask her, but she had a copy of it, and the hospital had a copy of it. Again, at that time, I was kind of ignorant to what a power of attorney was, what it did, what authority it gave. And from that point on, the nurses, the hospitals, the LTAC, and everybody else start letting Jamie make decisions for him. Now, mind you, he's got, he's never been declared incompetent. He's never been declared incapacitated um, with the medical power of attorney for it to go into effect, it specifically says on there, for this power of attorney to be in effect, there must be a written statement by a physician certifying that the patient is incapacitated at the time. And um, that never happened in any situation. Um, but people were letting her make decisions for him, such as on the, I believe it was the 24th of June, she decided that, that he would be moved from Barbara to um, another rehab, um, and I think it was select. Well, it was select specialty, and that was a rehab or a LTAC that was in the hospital. Moving back to the hospital to that LTAC, 
Um, he's there for, oh, goodness, Marsha, I feel like I'm talking a lot. Am I sounding? No, go ahead. Are you following me no. on this? Okay. I okay, am. So mm-hmm. he's, okay, so he's he's moved. They, she decides she doesn't like Vibra, which I will say this, and I think it's important that people understand that when they're, Family members, no matter who it is, whether it's your child, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your parent, um, it's very important that someone's there at all times, be it a hospital, be it a rehab, be it, and I know it's a crummy situation right now, be it a rehab, be it anywhere to be there because absolutely because things happen and these places are also short-staffed, you would be... If you haven't been through it, you would be appalled at how how much the lack of care that your family member gets, whether it's in a hospital, whether it's in a rehab, whether it's in an LTAC, or whether it's in hospice. Well, example, the other on- thing, the, the other thing, that is absolutely true, but the other thing is when you are not there and they are considering that your dad is incompetent and he's not able to make his decision because an adult child is making the decisions, they can come in in the middle of the night, give him a pill, inject him, say whatever, and, and you know, he, he doesn't know that this has not been approved by a doctor or and it's not for his best interest, and they can start drugging them if you are not there and you do not question everything that someone or, comes in and tries to do. You have to be Or dispense a the wrong medication. Mm-hmm. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, so he was... Um, there was a, a day that he was at the um, fiber at the LTAC, and they came in to do a breathing treatment. And I'll say this, when he was there, prior to going to the first LTAC, he was used to a regimen. For 12 years, that man had a regimen of his breathing treatments, of his medications. He had, he, he charted everything. He did everything. Well, when they moved him to the LTAC, and I'm not sure why, they decided to mark his breathing treatments as as needed, which is PRN is as needed. Um, and, again, I learned this when I got uh, the the documents or the records. But right. um, so, so a respiratory therapist had come in and had done a breathing treatment, and my understanding is they pulled the oxygen hose out of the wall, put in another hose, whatever happened. They didn't plug his oxygen back in. That man had been on oxygen every day, three liters every day for the past 12 years. They left his oxygen unhooked. And if this is, I can say at this point, remember me telling you about the book Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice by Michelle Dewars? This is exactly some of the things that she will point out (laughs) in that book that it's not just about them euthanizing people. It's about exactly what you're talking about is they didn't hook him up to oxygen. And that's no, what going they to did. affect him adversely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it did. There were there was several days after that that it was and it was noticeable the difference. And if you can imagine um having oxygen and then not having it, what a difference it would make. But what their right. excuse was, when they were confronted with it, they said, oh, he pulled it out of the wall. Well, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. He wasn't, there were no, there were no antipsychotics being dispensed at this time, so he was not aggressive. He was not confused. He was not, um, there was none of that. He was, other than being weak, no, he did not pull 
the hose out of the wall. Right. But that was what they had said. But because they had done that, it, it did um, cause him to have several difficult days as far as um, he was just more weak. So he's moved sure. from Vibra to they move. Jamie decides she's going to move him from Vibra. And, again, he's not consulted, and I'll tell you why I know this. Okay, so I get up there. I stay with him on the 23rd of June. Um, the next morning, the 24th, he's moved to select specialty, which is the LTAC within Methodist Hospital. And when we get over there, and again, I just, uh, hindsight 2020. And if you ever have a gut feeling that something's not right, question it. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know why I felt intimidated by them, but I did. I felt very intimidated by Jamie, and I felt very intimidated by Terry. They were at this point were being very ugly. They weren't talking to him. They weren't talking to me. They just were doing things. So, um, and again, Jamie had told me she had the power of attorney. I didn't understand that 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 is not a guardianship. A power of attorney is not a guardianship. It is not um, a be-all, end-all from this point forward. He has no say-so. A power of attorney is only in times of incapacity, um, and that fluctuates. You could have a good day one day and be fine. Nobody should be making your decisions for you. As I told you, he had a blood transfusion one point. He wasn't feeling that good. He wasn't feeling good that evening. I was on his power of attorney. I was on his um, next of kin or person to contact at the hospital. Basically, the HIPAA form at the hospital. They allowed me to sign those paperwork for the blood uh, um, transfusion um, because he just wasn't feeling good that day. But that did not mean that from there on out, somebody else could make the decisions for him. So, but I didn't know that then. So he's moved from Vibra to Select. When we get over to select and everything kind of settles down and they're all gone, he looks at me and he says, where am I? Not because he was confused. He's like, nobody's told me why I was moved from Vibra, got in an ambulance and went somewhere else. I said, Hmm. well, Dad, they they moved you from Vibra over here. And I said, it's just a different, it's just a different LTAG. And again, other than them leaving the oxygen off of him at Vibra, which is understandable that you don't want to leave him in a place that's not doing their job. But it was just that nobody was even saying, hey, Dad, this is what, you know, this is what they're, you know, what we're thinking is Vibra's not so hot, so let's move you over to select. There was no consulting him. And so he's like, where am I now? And I'm like, oh, well, we're over here back at the hospital at a different LTAC. But, again, that wasn't based on his confusion, just nobody was consulting him. So he's right. at the select specialty um, oh, probably, so by this point, it's June 24th. He is there for probably two weeks, and I believe Medicare, if I recall what I looked at, pays like 21 days, 20, 20 to 30 days on, on LTAC. So he's there at Select till I think it was the 10th or 12th of of um, July. And as I told you when we talked before, um, I call up. I'm going to work during the days, coming and staying with him most nights. There was a night or two I'd stay home rest and go back to work, go back to stay with him. So I'm I'm 
checking on him one day while I'm at work, and I call his cell phone. He's not answering. I call his room. He's not answering. I finally called the front church nurse desk, and I said, I can't get a hold of my dad. Why is, why is he not answering? Is he at therapy? What's going on? And Tasha tells me, who's the church nurse, that my sisters have moved him again. And I said, well, why did, why did they do that? And she said, I don't know. There's no reason. She said, I can just tell you that your sister, Terry, reported me to the hospital administrator, and I have no idea. She said, the funny thing is, is nobody, everybody likes me. And it was kind of funny the way she said it. She said, everybody likes me. I don't, nobody ever gets mad at me. And she said, your sister reported me to the hospital administrator. I, and apparently the hospital administrator didn't think, you know, anything of it. Tasha's still working, so she hadn't done anything wrong. Um, but it was just at those that point, and like I said, Terry, um, what a problem uh, having people tell her things. She would make a comment like, that nurse didn't know what she's doing. She's a new nurse. She didn't know what she's talking about. Um, there was one evening that I showed up at the at, at the hospital at the LPAC, um, and I walk up. It's six seven o'clock in the evening. Terry's over talking to one of the nurses, and I tell y'all this so you understand that the medical profession they don't care really who's got any authority or whatsoever because Terry was on nothing. Terry was on the paper form. Terry wasn't on the like admission contact paperwork. Terry wasn't on the POA. Terry wasn't on anything. But she could manipulate those people into doing what she wanted. I walk up one evening, and at this point, she's been ugly to me, so I really wasn't talking to her. But she's over in the corner kind of with the little nurse that's on duty with her little tray table. And I'm like, whatever. So I go in there in my dad's room. He's dozing. Come back out to ask the nurse, you know, how his day had gone. Terry had left at this point. So I walk up to the nurse, and I said, so how did he do today you know anything changed anything going on same routine that I had every day that I'd gone up there and she looked at me and says oh I can't talk to you and I said why and she said oh I just I can't talk to you anymore I can't tell you anything and I said why what is what has changed and she said oh I I can't I can't talk to you anymore you're gonna have to talk to the charge nurse and I'm like oh geez she's up to it again so I go find the charge nurse. At this point, I'm getting a little emotional because it's just ridiculous. And I asked the charge nurse, I said, what has changed on my dad's paperwork? And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. We can't talk to you anymore. And I said, when did his paperwork change? She said, I understand some people get upset when their parents are sick, and we just, you know, we just can't talk to you anymore. I looked at her again, and I said, When? Did his paperwork change? Well, I don't know. Let me go pull his chart. Marcia, she goes and gets his chart, comes back in her office, looks me in the face and says, oh, nothing's changed. We can still talk to you. So she did have some paperwork. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because on your hospital admittance paperwork, which I got after, after he passed and I request all these records, it'll list next to Ken... Uh, people of contact, you know, just like when you go to your doctor's office and there's a HIPAA form and your mm-hmm. doctor, will, your nurse will say, if, you know, would you like to list anybody that we can contact if we can't get a hold of you or, you know, God forbid you have a heart attack in the doctor's office, who can we call 
who is that contact person. They aren't necessarily a power of attorney, but they, the HIPAA form gives them the right to um, discuss your, your medical records with them. So that's the same thing at a hospital. You're going to have on the hospital admittance paperwork, and, and I can send you all a copy or send you a copy of this, and it'll say next of kin, person to contact, and it's just standard language. It's not a power of attorney. Um, like I said, it's more more like a HIPAA form, uh, an information release form. No. So they just they, your sisters did not want the nurses to talk to you about your dad's condition. I, d- I don't know what Carrie's problem was, Marcia. It's it's all very alien. Because, like I said, before he got sick, we all got along. I don't know, and like I told you when we talked before, and um, I don't know when Jamie took, the only thing I can, can think is when she took those documents, the durable power of attorney and the medical power of attorney and the advanced directive, when she took those into him on the 20th of June with all of listing her as the sole principal, and that's what the term is, it's the principal that that the age, no, I'm sorry, my dad would be the principal and the agent, the agent that you give that power to. She had listed herself as the agent on on everything. Well, again, he wasn't feeling good, but he had enough sense about him to know something was up, and he wrote, and I've got it, and you can tell her handwriting and his handwriting, he wrote in my name on the medical power of attorney, and on the advanced directive. And I don't know if that offended her. And I don't know. But that, that is when there was... Things started turning. Le- so, things started turning um, and there was less communication. And, and, and I don't know if Terry, that offended her because he could have put her on it and he chose not to. Terry was never on any of his paperwork. And I don't know if that... But they, but they completely ignored that. In in it, like I said, whenever that nurse looks at me and says, "Oh, we can't talk to you anymore," she did that based on solely on Terry standing there and telling her not to talk to me anymore Don't on nothing else. Okay, so can we move forward on um, July the twentieth? Because I don't I don't want to run out of time for you to tell the story. Okay. Um, yes, on July the twenty fifth, when he is scheduled to return home. Okay. Home yes, and he is scheduled to return home with home health care. That had been his desire. He was expressing what he wanted. Home health care, which was originally set up back in June, which was ABC Home Health Care, that same nurse had been contacted to come back to his house. He was set to be released from um, the rehab on July 28th, and on July 25th, Amanda was contacted. Jamie contacted and talked to Amanda. I contacted Amanda and talked to her, and it was set up that that home health care was coming to his house when he got released on the 28th. On the 20, goodness gracious, on in between, in between those days, between July 25th when we contacted her and July 28th, he was not feeling well again at the rehab. And again, that was due to, I think, short staff. He was not feeling well. He goes back to the hospital and he's treated for, um, the anemia, which I told you about, and then the mm-hmm. uh, he was dehydrated. So right. on between July, no, I apologize. It was it was it July thirtieth, I believe, July thirtieth. 
But anyway, he's transferred back to the hospital. And instead of going straight from the rehab home, he went back to the hospital. He got that's when he got the blood transfusion, or the, if I'm saying that terminology right, because he was anemic and then um, because he was dehydrated. So I'm at the hospital. I believe that is the the second, the first, the thirtieth, around the thirtieth. I stayed with him on Wednesday, Thursday. I take off work. I'm with him Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday. Jamie is when I'm at the hospital with him, and Jamie texts me and says, um, I, "I'm on my way up there um, because somebody was going to come and stay with him so I could go home and sleep." and She's on my way up there. Do you want something to eat? No, I'm good. So I'm waiting on her to get up there, and that was when I'm sitting there with my dad. He's asleep, and this fellow named Joel Johnson walks in and walks in his room and says, Hi, I'm Joel from hospice. And I was shocked, to say the least. Um, My dad and I just had a conversation that morning about how he was ready to get home and, you know, sit on a flushing toilet and get his physical therapy done and you know he was motivated to you know to work on this PT so Joel walks in says hi I'm Joel from hospice and I looked at him and I said excuse me and he said hi I'm Joel from hospice I'm here to meet with Jamie and thank God my dad was asleep because that's kind of a horrific way to find out that somebody put you on hospice I said no can we kidding. go out in the hallway can we go out in the hallway and talk and we walked out there, and I said, excuse me? And he said, I'm Joel from hospice. I'm here to meet with Jamie. And I said, when did things change? What are you talking about hospice? And he says, oh, no, 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 no. Don't, don't think of hospice like you used to think of hospice. It's not like that anymore. We can give you more services, and you get more nurses, and you just get lots more benefits. And I look at him, and I said, excuse me? I said, well, he still gets physical therapy and all the things he would get with home health care. And he says, oh, no, 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 you'll see a steady decline in him as soon as he goes on hospice. Exactly. So they gave you the sales job, the sales pitch about how they can offer more services, but no PT, no physical therapy, and he's going to start to decline. As God is my witness, within a minute's time, that man says, oh, no, 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 don't think of hospice like you used to think of hospice. It's not like that anymore. You get more services. You get more benefits. The whole spiel that everybody has heard. Exactly. And, no, it's worse than that because they're going to kill you. And that, and, and exactly was my question when he said that. I said, so he will be receiving the same services, physical therapy, and all of the services that he would get with home health care. And he said, no you will see a steady decline in him as soon as he goes on hospice. Mm-hmm. And about that time, Jamie came walking up the hallway. And I looked at her and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I don't know. I was just told to meet with him. Terry talked to the doctor and set this up. I don't know anything about it. I'm just here to sign the papers. And I said, Jamie, Dad doesn't want to be on hospice. Have you discussed this? I said, Dad has already discussed wanting to go home with the same home health care agency. And she just kept saying, I don't know anything about this. I was just told to meet with him. Terry talked to the doctor about this. Now, when I tell you Terry talked to the doctor, and I'll try not to talk too much and run over, but it's important that I find, well, I find this out after he dies, that the middle of the first part of July, 
One of them had contacted Dr. Telez, which was his personal physician of 12 years, and told Dr. Telez he was no longer needed. My dad didn't make that decision. Um, when mm-hmm. I called after my dad died to notify Dr. Telez that he had passed, his assistant says, oh, my goodness, Dr. Telez had no idea that, you know, as, as he told the APS worker, too, that it was not expected that soon. She said, Dr. Telez is so upset he doesn't know what he did to make your dad mad. And I said, Dad wasn't ever mad at Dr. Telez. And she said, well, your sister's called here and told Dr. Telez that he didn't want him to be his doctor anymore. I tell you that to tell you that the doctor that signed the certificate of terminal illness was the on-call doctor and also the doctor, the director of the hospice that he referred my dad to, which was where Joel came from, which was was hospice, uh, a lesion, a lesion hospice, which was based out of um, Dallas. And this is what you just said was very important, that the hospice doctor there at the hospital is the one that signed the paperwork Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. saying that your dad met the hospice qualifications when his own doctor for 12 years did not ever say he met any criteria for hospice. It was the hospice director that saw him at, I don't even know, did he see him at all? Dr. O'Shea had seen him when he was at the hospital. Okay. He had seen but him as the on-call doctor. Dr. O'Shea. And when okay. I looked him up, he was the also the director of the hospice that he referred, that, that Joel, Joel Johnson was with. Uh-huh. So, again, so, this is, they get, there's quotas, and this is a win situation for them and a situation for the hospital because the hospital did not want your dad to continue to come back to the hospital correct. for breathing issues or anemia or dehydration, and this is exactly part of that three times you go to the hospital and you now qualify for hospice because you were costing too much money to the hospital. The, to my listeners, this is reality. This is what is happening. Uh, I, it's so important that you understand and that you believe our warnings. It, this is happening. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, no, and, and, and I want to make sure that everybody understands the important part because I don't know that I'm explaining everything that I need to, so it's helpful, Marcia. Um, but And I would think that would be a conflict for the hospital doctor to re- recommend a hospice that he's benefiting from as as well. It happens you know all I, the I, time. I, yeah, it happens all the time, all the time. It's a problem. So um, he's supposed to, um, and I don't mean to be rushing you, but I don't want you to uh, run out because I know there's a lot more to cover. Um, so is. he's supposed to be released to go home with hospice care. Yes. Okay. So he was okay. a few days prior. He was home health care set up. Jamie, and again, God, please everybody be familiar with what a power of attorney is, what a guardianship is, and what all that entails. I did not know at that time. I I didn't know that Jamie didn't have the authority to be doing what she's doing. So I I sit there or I, I talk to her and Joel. I'm saying, Jamie, this isn't what Dad wants. Have you talked to Dad about this? Dad does not want hospice that is morning home health care she just keeps repeating i don't know anything about this i'm just here to sign the papers joel's telling us oh you know singing the state of the praises of hospice and and telling me then that you know you'll see a steady decline and he said you know people just and this was another thing he said people just wait too long 
to utilize hospice. I mean, we put my mom on hospice, and she was dead the next day. Oh, jeez. At that point, I'm getting nowhere. I didn't know that I had, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. So I said, I'm, I'm leaving. And so I leave the hospital. I text Jamie when I leave, and I say, I never in a million years would have thought that you would have behaved this way, um, and I'm, I'm shocked. She texts me back and says, oh, we're, we're doing all this. This is to help Dad get better. No, hospice is not. Joel just told you you would see a steady decline in him. So that's August 2nd, on that Saturday. He is released from the hospital on August 4th. He goes home. Um, this is with a legion. And, and, and again, this, there's many things that I, that I don't approve of with them. Again, they allowed Jamie to sign him up. They allowed Jamie to do the admission patient paperwork um they never even acquired a copy of the medical power of attorney i did when i requested those records i asked them to please provide me with the medical power of attorney to show where jamie had this authority they said no they never saw it so they allowed someone to sign as a power of attorney that they had no um confirmation even had the authority to do that there was no written physician certification saying that james was incapacitated so the medical power of attorney should have never even been a factor. The reason that they list when Jamie signs all the paperwork and, and it says, you know, patient James Lang, patient signature, and it says reason patient didn't sign, patient sleeping. Um, there was another one that said patient couldn't sign because he had taken his medication. Those are not legal reasons for having someone not sign paperwork. It's because they're sleeping. That does not give someone authority, a power of attorney, to sign for another patient because someone's sleeping. It's when they're incapacitated. He was not incapacitated. So he was fraudulently admitted into the Elysian um, hospice. That's on August 4th. He goes goes to his house. He's there the 4th. Um, I'm going back and forth again and staying with him some evenings and staying at home um, on a couple of evenings, going to work. Um, I'm at home on the 10th. I get a text message from Jamie that says, Dad has a he- Dad says he has a headache. He wants to go back to the hospital, um, and which I think is an important thing that Dad says he has a headache, and Dad wants to go back to the hospital, which means Dad's making his decision. A lesion has, uh, in his records, there's a revocation form for hospice because they don't want to pay when they go back to the hospital. So there's a revocation form in there. Um, that one, again, is signed by Jamie, not by James. And the reason for Jamie signing that one, it says because he's unresponsive. No, he wasn't unresponsive because Jamie mm-hmm. already said, Dad says he wants to go back to the hospital. He's got a headache. So check your paperwork. Always question paperwork. I, I just can't stress that enough. He goes back to the hospital on the 10th. He's at the hospital. He gets there. Um, Jamie had given him two hydrocodone and for a man who has never taken anything more than a Tylenol for the last 30 years literally um, she gives him two hydrocodone to try to alleviate his headache it makes him a little sick tongued so when he's at the hospital and I get there he's a little sick tongued but um, there's notes in the hospital records that say that the issue with his headache uh, has resolved itself and and um, and there's no indication, and throughout this, there is no indication that James has any cognitive um, dementia, 
any issues such as that. He, they keep him in the hospital, um, or they admit him. Um, I'm going back and forth, driving in the evening, staying with him. I go on, and tell me, Marsha, if I'm missing anything because I'm trying to speed up, too. On the 13th, which is a Wednesday, August 13th, I come up to the hospital. I'm going to stay the night with him. When I get there, Terry's there. My daughter and her son, or I'm sorry, my daughter, her husband, and their children are there. As soon as I get there, Terry leaves. As soon as she walks out the door, the door had no more than closed. My dad said, I don't trust her. She's taking things from my house. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? Because I would have never thought, I had no reason to believe she would be taking anything. He said, I don't trust her. She's taking things from my house. He asked my son-in-law, he said, Scott, will you go by my house and make sure she isn't taking anything from my house? Scott said, sure. They stay for a long time. Um, it was a weird, it was, an, it was odd that he would say that. Odd, right. odd in the fact, not that he was confused, odd that what the heck has, what has she done or what has she said that's caused him to not trust her? Mm-hmm. Um, what I right. think happened is because she had taken things from his house, then that was found out within a couple of days. I think she was having conversations in front of him thinking he was asleep, and she was talking to her husband on the phone saying, hey, you need to come down here. I'll meet you at the house whenever, because they had taken things from his house. That's on the 13th. I get up on the morning of the 14th um, to go to work. Plan is I'm going to stay home the night of the 14th and come back to the hospital on the 15th. There's still no tentative release date. Nobody, there was discussions with, you know, Jamie, like, you know, during the day, and we all still talk with text during the day. How's he doing today? You know, what what are they saying about release? And, you know, oh, there's not. I said, okay, whenever he gets ready to come back home, um, uh, Terry's a teacher, and so she's fixing to have to leave to go back to Wichita Falls. And I said, you know, what we need to do is I'll get together, pay for home health care um, to stay, you know, in addition to the regular home health care, but someone to stay with him during the day while I go to work, and then I can come stay with him in the evening until he gets where he's good staying home by himself. I leave the morning of the 14th. Again, we're still texting back and forth on how he's doing. Everybody is communicating well on that part, I guess. Um, And the morning of the 15th, I'm at work. I'm texting Terry. We're talking about, and, and this is something, too, when he was in the hospital, they were giving him benzodiazepines and tramadol, to try to help him sleep at night, which was having the opposite effect on him. And so we were talking about that and the side effects and how that's probably, anyway, talking, talking, talking on the text. And about 3 o'clock that afternoon, I get a text message from Dave, from Jamie saying, Dad's no longer at the hospital. Um, I've talked to an attorney. I've changed the locks on his door. Um, at and his Dad's house. on his way to At his house. Mm-hmm. And Dad's on his way to Terry and Jarrett's in Wichita Falls. And so I was a bit speechless at the moment, and I texted her back, and I said, does Dad have keys to his house? And she texted me back and said, no, I'm the only one with the key to his house. And that's when I knew that the bottom had completely fallen out. Right. I I texted Terry because, again, I had been talking to her all day, nothing, no indication. I texted her back, and I said, tell Dad I'll be there tomorrow. Her husband texts me back, who's a police officer in Wichita Falls, and tells me I can't come to their house on Saturday, that they have company coming over, I need to come on Sunday. 
I immediately called an attorney that I knew that handles uh, probate, estate matters, which is where your elder law comes into effect. And I I called George, and I said, this is what's happened. What do I need to do? And he said, keep your wits about you. When you go up there, don't initiate any conversation with your dad as far as what his wishes are. But if he... But if he brings it up, record it. So that's what I do. Um, I text Jarrett and tell him I'll be there. He tells me I can come to it. He tells me what time I can come to it, though, which is important, which is important because there was a setup there. He says we can show up like at 2 o'clock. I go get my daughter from her house. We drive to Wichita Falls, which is three hours away. We arrive at his house. They've got my dad set up in their living room on some rickety old antique looking hospital bed um he still has a pick line hanging out of his arm from the hospital which is attached to nothing um and at the time i'm like what the heck but that was real handy when they started giving him IV drugs at the hospital but he still has a pick line in his arm from the hospital in their living room in this horrible bed i don't i don't know at the time who who is coming to his house. I, I would assume they have home health care coming to his ha- their house is what the plan is. Um, so when we first get there, he's kind of dozing. Um, he wakes up. He and Cassie have a conversation, talk about work, talk about a boyfriend, having a rational conversation, chit-chatting. As he starts talking more, Terry comes in from the other room and um, – sits on the couch, then as he's talking more, and mind you, I've got my phone going on record, she gets up, goes to her bathroom, which I can, is in eyesight, um, gets a pill, comes in there and gives it to my dad and said, here, Dad, take this. At the time, I had no idea what it was. Um, he wasn't complaining of pain, wasn't complaining of anything. He's just talking. And so then she goes and sits on the end of the couch in that same room. He's talking, talking. And then he says, I want to go home. And I said, do what? And he said, I want to go home. And I said, well, Dad, this, we'll have to ask Terry about that. He said, what do you mean I have to ask Terry about that? And because he's a grown man, why does he have to ask anybody? He said, why right. do you have to ask well, I said, well, Dad, I'm not real sure what's going on here. And Terry gets up from the couch, walks over and says, um, what's going on? And he says, Terry, I want to go home. She goes to get her husband, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to talk fast. Um, she goes to get her husband, who, again, is the Wichita Falls Police Department uh, officer. Jared comes in there, tells my dad he cannot go home, and he said, uh, why can I not go home? And he said, you can't take care of yourself. And I said, Jared, he, doesn't, he won't be taking care of himself. The same people that were taking care of him before can, can take care of him. And my dad said, I want to go home. And Jared said, you can't go home. You can't. He can't take care of himself, Julie. And I said, no, I, I didn't say he could take care of himself. Anyway, Jarrett had, after course I find out, had already contacted two of his buddies at the police department, had them waiting at a, a street away. He calls the record line. His buddies show up within about 30 seconds. Um, uh, I'm standing there talking to my dad. Terry and Jarrett go outside. My daughter goes outside. She comes back in and says, um, uh, Mom, Jarrett's called, you know, his friends, his buddies over here, we need to leave. And I said, no, we just got here. I'm I'm not leaving. He says he doesn't want to be here. Um, I told you what my dad said, because at this point I'm crying. My dad said, Julie, we'll figure this out. Just He said, 
put your big girl pants on, wipe your tears, and we'll figure this out. And I wow. said, Dad, I'm, I, don't, I don't know what's going on here. And he said, I don't either. Um, he had also told Jarrett before he called, he said, if you call the police, that's the final straw. So they had apparently had some other conversations discussing his desire to not be there. Um, I ended up walking outside. The, the police officers are there, very nice. They're very polite. They say they'll go in and check on my dad. Um, they'll ask him what he wants to do. Um, but go ahead and go home. They'll, you know, they'll do this and they'll, they'll let us know or whatever. I didn't have any other resources because Jared's a police officer. Then he's called his buddies. I don't know what else to do. So, as George had told me, the attorney. If he says he doesn't want to be there, to call APS. So Monday, that was Sunday afternoon. Monday morning, I call APS. Um, they initiate a level two uh, APS investigation, um, which gives them 72 hours to make face-to-face contact. Um, what I find out later is, after I contact APS Monday morning, um, Jarrett, my understanding is APS is supposed to contact local law enforcement whenever there's um, an abuse allegation, an elder abuse allegation. Uh, I don't know if if APS contacted Wichita Falls PD and then Wichita Falls PD told Jarrett, um, but for whatever reason, they moved him immediately that evening. Well, that evening, they moved him into the hospice of Wichita Falls facility. Um, um, I will say on when I got the when I got the paperwork from the hospice, I come to find out that apparently what Terry had given him when I was there was Haldol, um, because on the records from Hospice of Wichita Falls on that same day before I got there, the DNA or the LVN made a note uh, in the documents that she couldn't account for how many Haldol he had been given. And he was he was very thick-toned when I got there. His, his speech was um, different. So what I presume is that she had given him Haldol, hoping he would sleep the entire time I was there, and he didn't. Wow. They moved him, they moved him to their facility that evening. Um, that week, um, they give him uh, what, what that uh, note that I sent you, Marcia, that had the, the drugs that they had given him. They gave him Haldol. They gave him Seroquel. Um, Although they didn't document it on the medications chart, which I would say that too, when you don't trust that the medication charts, if you get those from the hospice, don't trust that they've documented everything. Um, because in their in their summary, and I don't know if each hospice is different, but they had a medication chart and then they had a documentation summary that would list, you know, when they came in to give him a bed bath or when they came in to give him food or when they came in to give him his medication. There was notations in that documentation summary that they were giving him a Alprazolam, which is Xanax, and that's not noted on his medication chart. Um, uh, I will say this. All three of those drugs they were given him. Oh, oh, there was more than that. But, yeah, Halperidol, Seroquel, the Alprazolam. Which is the same thing as Haldol. Yes, it is. Halperidol is the same as Haldol. And then Seroquel, which is used to treat uh, extreme mood disorders, Tourette's syndrome, and... Bipolar, which your dad is none of those. No. And these are the drugs no. that they're giving them, which have very adverse effect on the elderly. So Absolutely. It's torture. They, they tortured your precious dad. 
So and I will say don't... this too when I when I got those hospice of Wichita Falls records again, they allowed Jamie. My dad never, never. The only thing that that he signed that had to do with his medical desires. I mean, besides adding me to those the medical power of attorney, he signed the full code resuscitation form. There's no question about that. But as, mm-hmm. as far as the hospice admittance document with the lesion or with Hospice of Wichita Falls, he didn't sign any of them. There sure is documentation that they were, you know, in in some instances when they had certain questions to ask him, they would say they had no, no there was no comments about his capacity or, you know, they would make documentations that they had a conversation about this or that or whatever. And James, they, you know, list out a conversation they had with him that that obviously showed that he had his capacity. There was no no indication on his admittance paperwork for hospice of Wichita Falls. In fact, it said um, there was a question like Alzheimer's, yes or no, no, uh, doesn't, doesn't apply, and it didn't. But they allowed Jamie and Terry, again, Terry had no authority, was on no paperwork, but they allowed Jamie and Terry to sign those admittance paperwork and in that admission paperwork, they asked Jamie, do you want to continue? This was on Friday the 15th when they had first taken him from the hospital to, her, to Terry's house. Do you want to continue acting as medical power of attorney? It specifically says, we asked Jamie two times. She said, no, he's at Terry's house. She can do it now. They know that they saw that power of attorney. They know that they have to ask her. You want? Are you able and willing to continue acting as power attorney? And she says no. Then there was no doubt. There was no doubt that they should have immediately been calling me if they're acting as right a, because you're all power attorney. Or right. If they're acting as though he has it, that he shouldn't be, you know, that he doesn't have capacity to be filling out his paperwork. If you're allowing Jamie to fill it out, then you're saying that power of attorney is in effect. You specifically ask her, does she want to continue acting as that? And she says no. Then they should have immediately called me. Immediately. Absolutely. Right. So the um, APS APS, um, could not get in touch with them. She went to their home a couple of times and left cards. No ticket. It looked like they were there. Right. And he eventually calls her back and tells her that, if she meets him, he'll she he will tell her where James is, but she she's busy him. until the following Monday, right? Correct. So, and, okay. and let me say this because I don't I, I know we're running short on time. The determination on the APS investigation the, uh, says unable to determine alleged victim died. So it didn't say unfounded or unsubstantiated. It says unable to determine because he died because she never made face-to-face contact with him. She went, correct, she went to their house during that week, notated that they were, that there were cars in the driveway, that the plants looked like they had just been watered, that the dogs are barking inside. She's leaving cards on their front door. On Friday, on Friday, Jarrett calls her and says, I've been getting your cards, and if you want to meet me somewhere, I'll tell you where he is. And this is documented in the APS investigation. Wow. Irene, that's very much so arrogance, and he used his position as a police officer many times mm-hmm. throughout this or this circumstance. And 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 maybe on another time we can talk about how the Texas Rangers were involved and did confirm that there was uh, 
corruption, obstruction, abuse of authority, um, undue influence, unlawful restraint, um, and um, I had three rangers tell me that they thought that that crimes had been committed. And I'll wow. at a later time I'll explain how that ended. Right. Um, well, he it hasn't even told ended. Them. It's on. It's on hold. Is what I would say. It hasn't ended. It's on hold. Um, okay. My goodness. But he even went to hospice and told them that there was an open APS investigation that he was he concerned. Did. Right. Yes, ma'am. So he called. So he calls. He finally calls Irene with APS on Friday. I think it was around eleven o'clock. Um, Irene never made face-to-face contact. Um, I will say that there, to report a complaint against APS, which what I did, you called the Office of Consumer Affairs. Um, they responded that they had investigated um, because of the circumstances. They're unable to disclose what their findings were, but they apologized. And, I, and that was their wording. We apologize for your father's death. And I thought that was very telling that the investigation of how APS was handled is they apologized for his death and said that it had been addressed and that was all they could tell me and that again APS is Office of Consumer Affairs it's a weird name I think but that's who the overseers of APS are but but so Jared does he calls APS at 11 o'clock ish on Friday Um, he then he and Trey then go to the hospice I have documentations where they sat with that are by the social worker. Jared and Terry tell the social worker that there's an active APS investigation against them, um, that they that they could lose their jobs, and that that if um, that that if APS uh, investigates, that James will end up in the the custody of the state, which is insane. Someone only goes to the custody of the state if there's no one else that can care for them. But that was his wording, and that's in the notes. That, oh, and that James had been declared incompetent, um, and that he, Terry, Jamie, and Jamie's hus- husband, because James had been declared incompetent, which he hadn't, um, that they should be able to make the decision for James. And I will say this. When he used the Jarrett being an officer of the law, he's quite familiar with the terminology. And for someone to be declared incompetent, takes a court order. It takes a... a a position meeting with the board and making that determination. It's not just it's it's not just random willy nilly. So he tells the social worker there was an active APS investigation. He and Terry could lose their jobs. James would end up in the state of the or custody of the state. James had been declared incompetent, and that Julie hadn't been involved in her father's life, and therefore he, Terry, Jamie, and Philip should be able to make the determination make the decisions for James. As we said before during the beginning, they had notated that there was a medical power of attorney, that there was an advanced directive. Jamie and I are on that. They don't call me. Throughout that week, once they placed him in the facility, the hospice makes notations of, uh, because Jamie refused to give them a copy of it on Friday, Jamie said that she will give it to Terry and Terry to give a copy to hospice. Throughout the week, there's documentation that says Terry to provide copies of medical power attorney, Terry to provide copy, Terry to provide copy. That was written on there until the 20th when all of a sudden they changed it that there's not a medical power attorney, there's not an advanced directive, and there's another form that hospice has uh, what looks like Jared's handwriting because it's not signed, but it's 
it's a, um, a decision maker form that says um, what if, if somebody comes into hospice and doesn't have any paperwork, this is what, you know, who would be the decision makers. So they change it to say that there's not a medical power of attorney, there's not an advance directive, and Jarrett fills out this other form saying that he, Terry, Jamie, and Philip should be the decision makers for James. So they, they withhold and conceal his paperwork. They allow Jarrett to fill in another one. Jarrett tells them that he uh, and Terry have an active APS investigation against them. And that's on Friday. My dad, throughout the week, there's been notations in the, uh, the hospice record saying that James has repeatedly told them that he did not want to be there repeatedly told them that he wasn't receiving the level of care that he wanted. Um, they tell him he cannot leave. On Friday evening, he's, he's upset. They make a notation of that. But James says he wants to talk to his daughter. They don't say which daughter. Um, and it's Friday evening, after all of this has taken place, that they start really opening him up. Um, he, hasn't him. Eat, he has not eaten since Thursday morning, according to their records. He hasn't eaten since Thursday morning. They have him listed as 5'8 and 160 pounds. He we- he's six foot tall. He weighed 138 at the hospital, so he hasn't eaten. He he weighs 138 pounds, and they start drugging him on Friday evening. Um, Terry has also told them. Now, mind you, that if you read their records, they'll say, "Oh, James, oh, they, they died." Okay, you're down to three time. minutes. <laughs> They diagnosed You're down to three having, minutes. Can you hear me? Okay. They changed his diag- or added a diagnosis of Alzheimer's on the 20th, I believe, at the hospice. He had never had that. They changed that. They um, they make all these notations that the reason they're giving these, um, like you said, the antipsychotics is because he's having behavioral abnormalities, I guess because he's complaining that he doesn't want to be there. Um, but Terry makes a statement also on Friday that James is doing so much better that she's going to take him home on Saturday. They start drugging him on Friday night pretty heavily. No, that's when he starts when they start showing that he has labored respirations. Six o'clock Saturday morning, they make a notation that they've contacted Terry and Jarrett. They have a discussion with Terry, who has just told them there's an active ABS investigation. They have a discussion with Terry, who's on none of his paperwork, life-sustaining treatment, um, what needs so to be when done. Do you get, is, when do you get the call to come down I there? Got a, I got a text message from Jared at 7 o'clock on Saturday morning of the 23rd. Sends me a text message saying, James, um, they called us up there. James isn't doing well. And I thought he was still at their house because I hadn't heard any difference. And I texted him back and I said, called us up where, Jared? He said, the hospice of Wichita Falls. I said, how long has he been there, Jared? He doesn't answer me. I get in my car. I go pick my daughter up and I drive three hours again to Wichita Falls. I'm pulling into the parking lot of Hospice of Wichita Falls. I called them on the phone, never spoken to them again, never received a phone call from them, and just said, where do I go? I'm, up, I'm coming up here to see my dad, James Lang. Where do I go when I walk in the front door? And the receptionist says, we won't have any disturbances up here. And I'm like, what are, what are you talking about? I've never spoken to these people. Terry and Jarrett had spun such a web of lies. Uh, and lied, yes. And lies that she that got them to to ignore federal guidelines, criminal right. law. I mean, just it, it was amazing. So your that dad, they yeah. So your dad um, on the twenty third 
actually passed away after being tortured by his own children. Absolutely. Uh, it's just heartbreaking to me. And, and absolutely by well, hospice, which is all false. Right, but you, you, you know, hospice, that's what they do, right? But you expect your children, and this is why we talked about it earlier, be careful who you give medical Absolutely. power of attorney to because if it's somebody who will have an advantage or doesn't care about keeping you alive, then they can be in cahoots with hospice, and hospice has absolutely no problem whatsoever in taking people down. They do it every day. They have no grief, no remorse, no ethics, no morals. They believe they're doing people a favor to get them out of this world. We have become a society where our people don't matter anymore. And that's oh, what I want to leave that. people with. Is and that careful. was his fifth day. And that was his fifth yeah. day of hospice. Yeah. Of respite care. That's another thing to notice too. That <laughs> that was the day, the last day he could have been there, and they. And again, hopefully, some other time we can talk about how he had probably used up quite a bit of his aggregate cap in that week because they bill so much more for respite well, care they and do. when you're patient care. Yes. Yeah. But um, it it's tragic, and to the listeners, please listen to what we're saying and take heed because we don't want you to go through what Julie went through, what I went through, and what thousands of other people are going through and the guests have. Um, I appreciate you listening to our program tonight, and I wish everybody a happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas, and may 2021 be a better year for all of us. And, Julie, thank you so much for coming on tonight and telling your dad's story. I know it was hard. You have 30 seconds. You got the last 30 seconds. Yes, I would just tell everybody, please, 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 and it is important that you have papers um, and documents and your desires in place, but they will not always be followed. They won't always be um, honored. So question, question. If you have a gut feeling, please question um, and be informed of what those forms mean. Absolutely. And you have to be strong. You have to be hard. And if you can't, then Life Legal Defense Foundation halovoice.com, right to life, every state has it, contact somebody to get back up. It's your life, your loved one's life depends on that. So good night, everybody, and we'll see you in 2021. Good night, Julie. Thank you, Marcia. Okay, bye-bye. You're welcome. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Mm -hmm. Bye.